Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to your December Donor Pick episode, courtesy of our faithful patrons. I'm Patch, and with me, hoping to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas movie conversation, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Merry Christmas, Patrick. Happy belated Merry Christmas. You know, obviously, or maybe you're listening to this in 2019, so Merry Christmas. At, yeah, whatever. We're always counting down to Christmas where I come from. Yeah, it's, it's like 363 days at this point. Something like that's that. right. That's right. It's right <laughs> around the corner. It is. It's, you know, get your shopping days uh, in there. Our donors have spoken and spoken loudly, and with a majority, solid majority win, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was victorious. So let's get right into it. This is, of course, the spoiler section. We're going to spoil the heck out of this. This was a movie that came out in 1990. We hope that this is part of your regular Christmas movie rotation, but if it's not, please give it a shot and then come back and thank us as you listen to this conversation. Let's get it started with our one-word takeaways. Aaron, why don't you kick us off? I would love to, but before I do that, because I don't want to forget this question, I'm curious, do you know when they dropped the title from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to Becoming Just Christmas Vacation? Because I noticed on IMDb this year that it is a change that has officially occurred. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it as well, and I don't see it as National Lampoon, so I don't know when they dropped it. Maybe it was... Ooh, um, I'd have to look at my DVD to see if it's actually on there. I think it is, though. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Well, listeners, someone, please come chime in, comment on the uh, post that we make for social media uh, for this episode, and let us know if you have an answer to that question of when they decided to drop the National Lampoon edition uh, to the film title. All right, well, my one-word takeaway, Patrick, I went with balance. And the reason is that I think what makes Christmas Vacation work so well is that it is a perfect balance of comedic and dramatic moments. Too many comedies, in my opinion, over-focus on the antics, and they never really let us care about the characters or their situations enough to have the humor be effective. And that that's me speaking, but for me, that's how it normally works. But this film does, and because of that, nearly every joke works and lands, and we're not oversaturated with them. Clark, he just wants to have this great, big, happy family gathering at his home and spend his Christmas bonus on something his family will enjoy. These are feelings that we can all relate to, and it makes seeing all of his struggles both hilarious, but while we're laughing, we're laughing with a lot of empathy. And so it's a special thing, man, and I really think that this film is representative of a lost art in comedy writing. I absolutely agree, and I think that the word consistent came to mind for me in light of the things that you've been talking about. And I mean consistent in that all of the National Lampoon movies, and I'm saying National Lampoon, the, the ones that center around the Griswold family, because I know there have been National Lampoon's graduate, you know, college or something like that. There have been other ones and iterations of the Griswold family, the most recent one that comes to mind. But I think that what makes these movies so successful is that consistency that exists 
in the Griswold family, with the exception being the hilarious switching of Russ and Audrey in each film, which, by the way, is probably a little consistent as well. I mean, if they were the same in two movies, then that would just be weird, right? But beyond the hijinks and slapstick, as you mentioned, that the, oblig- the obligatory ogling of the attractive stranger that we see in all these, there is, like you mentioned, something at the heart of each and every movie. It's the desire for one man to create the perfect family experience, whether it's a cross-country trip to Wally World, an international tour of Europe, or in this case, a good old-fashioned family Christmas. And I think that that consistency is what makes this formula so attractive. And especially around the holiday season, I think this is my favorite of all those because of the fact that Christmas is centered around the idea of family. I mean, most movies that you I say most. A lot of the movies that you see that are centered around Christmas are usually related to families of some sort, either the frustration of families or the love of families or the disdain of families. And Christmas Vacation really, really kind of quantifies this in a most in really an entertaining and heartfelt way. And I absolutely agree. I think this is a lost art, one that John Hughes as a writer particularly in the 80s and the first part of the 90s, really latched onto and really was successful at from from a writing standpoint. He has just a just a slew of great movies that have those particular elements in them. And I want to get into more details here here in a minute to talk about that. But let's first talk about Christmas Vacation as a whole. Does this sit on your mandatory movie watch list? Is it something you'll pop in at least once during the holiday season? And if so, what makes it for you such an enjoyable watch? Well, it is. And what's interesting is that it wasn't until probably the last two years or so that I actually fell in love with this movie. I had seen it as a kid, and I don't think I'd watched it in over a decade, which was the case with many, many films prior to us podcasting. And I began to revisit these old films that I remembered from my childhood to see if they held up. And this was one that a couple Christmases ago I popped in to give it a shot. And of course, you know me. Uh, I'm not a big comedy guy. My first thought was, uh, why would I ever prioritize rewatching this? It's a stupid Christmas movie. I don't remember. All I remember is the dumb squirrel scene and, you know, there's a stupid Christmas tree thing. And like, I, I mean, I just thought I, my memory of it was all in a negative way. But when I was watching it, I literally was, it was as if I was having that Clark Griswold face when he sees the Christmas tree for the first time. It's like, you know, the, the lights were on around me and the angels were singing and it was like, Aaron, this is a movie you love. Did, did your eyes go frozen at some point? Um, I don't, you know what? I don't remember. They might have because it, it was wintertime and it's cold here in the winter. Um, but no, it is now on my absolutely every year rewatch list i've tried to watch it the last couple years uh on thanksgiving or sorry the day after thanksgiving when i put up my tree not while i'm putting up the tree because i like to focus on movies so typically put up the tree and then watch this as my first christmas movie of the season um it is at number 88 on my latest top 100 list one of very very few straight comedies and when i call straight comedies i mean according to imdb when you go to like the genre list Movies that literally only say comedy, very few of those that make my type of top 100 list. But uh, this one does, and it's very rare. And, you know, I think what makes it enjoyable 
is like is what I was saying in my opening primarily. For me, it's the relatability of the character. You know, when Clark is trying to make this perfect Christmas, I experience this on a repetitive basis, but in a much lower level. Um specifically because of my situation with my kids. So I'm divorced, I don't have my kids full time. Uh for example, we just we were just together for our Christmas vacation. Haha. <laughs> No pun intended, but they were here for a week before Christmas, and you know we had this big plan. We're gonna make a big meal. Well, we don't do a humongous amount of meal cooking here. We do like crockpot stuff, you know, and like easy stuff because that's what Dad likes to cook. But we had this great plan, and we were gonna make a big ham, and we were gonna sous vide for the first time. I got this sous vide from my boss for Christmas. We're really excited about it, so we went out. We bought all the stuff the day before Christmas dinner day. I get just deathly sick for 24 hours. So that leads into the next morning. Well, now I'm, now I'm going into the day with a sense of frustration because I'm nervous and I'm like, now I've got to make up for a day of missed time. Clark experiences these throughout this film. He's trying to overcompensate. He wants everything to be so perfect. And I do that too, trying to make this ham and I get up and my timing is perfect. I've organized everything just like Clark tries to do. And what happens? I put my ham in the pot and realize it's taller than my my only pot. There's no way I can make this ham because I don't have a pot. So it's the day before Christmas, and I end up going out to two different places trying to buy a pot that will fit the ham so that I can cook it, which puts me behind schedule. And so tension is building, and it's all coming from a place of pressure that I'm putting on myself, that my family's not even putting on me, right? But I want to make this meal so perfect for them it's coming from a place of giving, and that's why I relate to Clark so much. And and so it's funny because I'm talking about this like it's a drama movie, really. But it's also hilarious, and re- and it's quotable, and you know it makes me laugh out loud because it's the antics that take place. And so all of those reasons make it you know behind It's a Wonderful Life. It's my second favorite you know Christmas movie of all time. That's a big deal coming from you that a comedy is a is a top two. Uh, Christmas movie. And although we don't have a big gamut of movies to actually pick from, it's still a big deal. So yay for that. I, I look at Christmas Vacation. It's, it's definitely a, a, a mandatory watch for us. We watched it late this year, admittedly because I wanted to be fresh for the podcast. I didn't want to. And, and there were a number of other movies that, that we watched during the year. We actually start off our Christmas movie watching by checking out Miracle on 34th Street on Thanksgiving. So that's kind of our kickoff movie. But at some point early on, Christmas vacation gets in the rotation, mostly when my son goes to bed, because there's obviously some salty language in there that a five and a half year old probably doesn't need to hear, or even if he doesn't get, doesn't need to ask questions about at this point. Um, but I, I look at a movie like this and I ask myself, why do I enjoy this so much? And highly quotable, a lot of fun. You can connect with people when you start, you know, quoting that, you know, a line here or there. And, this year, as I was watching it, I started thinking about the idea of family. You know, I'm a, I'm a dad and a husband. And I started thinking about the Christmases of years past and the ones that stood out to me. And honest to goodness, man, the ones that stood out are the ones that were really not good. They were a mess. And I remember a line that Clark says to his dad. He goes, all of our holidays were always such a mess. 
how did you get through it? And his dad goes, I had a lot of help from Jack Daniels. Now, there, our Christmases were not that extreme. We didn't have to <laughs> resort to a bottle necessarily to get through them. But there were hilarious moments that I can look back on. Uh, I remember thinking one year my brother got this amazing high-tech VCR. The next year, my parents forgot that they had gotten him that VCR and gave it to him again the next year. <laughs> I can totally <laughs> see your dad and, doing that. And he, <laughs> and he thought it was a joke. He was like, oh, they wrapped up another present in this VCR box. Nope, the exact same VCR from the next year later. There are golf balls that are still missing in my parents' house that we have yet to find. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I wanted to – you know, be that sincere guy that made a birthday cake for Jesus. And I put an Instagram post a couple of years ago and it was a hot mess, but there was something beautiful about that. And there was just a really cool connective, like gospel message that I, I connected with in that. But the thing is, is that anytime I think about Christmases, I think about the mess ups. I think about the imperfections of those Christmas mornings or of the Christmas experience and I look back on them with some fondness because of the fact that they weren't perfect, because they didn't go according to plan. And Christmas Vacation, the Lampoon movies in general, but Christmas Vacation specifically calls that out in such a an approachable and hilarious, entertaining, and sincere way. It's that beauty and disaster of family being home for Christmas. There was a there's a great moment in the movie where where um his wife is they're in bed and of course the whole thing with the sticky, you know, the sap and everything. And she's going, you know, uh, I've talked to my parents and they've decided they're coming for Christmas too. And she goes, it's not too late to change our plans. He goes, no, I want to have everybody home for Christmas. And I'm watching this guy through the movie and he's like, he's not having a good time. He avoids the breakfast table. And I'm like, why did you put yourself through that agony? But that's kind of the journey that John Hughes puts his protagonist through. He keeps this, idealism that exists in these characters and it's almost as if he tests them and i want to kind of talk a little bit about that about john hughes as a writer like i mentioned before he had this string of really really fantastic movies that he wrote uh dating back to mr mom in 1983 which we got to cover on the on the show um pretty in pink where it's science ferris bueller's day off just the, the any of course any movie that takes place in high school i'm always going to gravitate towards there's that soft spot that i have but then he gets into European Vacation, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which I got to watch for the first time this year, Uncle Buck, and then Christmas Vacation and Home Alone, which we talked about a little bit here and there. I think that John Hughes has a knack for writing really compelling characters in the most comedic way possible. And I think that he has this uncanny ability to challenge that protagonist with the worst circumstances and almost take him through this ring of fire, these fires of like circumstantial hell to see if he's actually going to crack. And what's fun about those journeys is that if we know John Hughes as a writer, we we, we get the sense that this guy's going to come out on top, but he's going to be different at the end of this. I mean, it happened with the characters in... You know, it happened with Kevin in Home Alone. It's happened with, um, with Clark Griswold in this one. And there's something very sincere about that. There's something very almost approachable about these characters because they feel grounded in the world in which they live and they become relatable to us. They're not supermen in this case. 
So I wanted to ask you, is that something that appeals to you from his writing standpoint? Do you, um, I figure you pick up on that, but is, is that something that you celebrate in watching something like this? Yeah, I think that goes back to exactly what I was talking about with being able to relate to Clark. And I didn't actually know that John Hughes wrote this movie for the longest time. Just like planes, trains and automobiles, I discovered that he wrote that this year. So I, and I didn't know he wrote Home Alone either until very recently. For some reason, John Hughes for me was always just the, you know, Molly Ringwald or 80s trilogy guy with the, the Sweet 16, Pretty in Pink and Breakfast Club, um, trifecta back then. I, I did not think of him as this expansive writer into kind of more adult type stuff. Um, so it was intriguing to me, but as soon as I knew that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see the connections, the ones that you're pointing out right now. And I think it's because that it's, it's a wholesome sense of comedy that these characters experience and go through that allows me to care so much more about them than I do in modern day writing. These characters are are every men generally speaking um there's no supermen no superhuman issues going on here you know these are real things the road rage that clark experiences at the first beginning of this movie this is something my kids and i deal with all the time i have taken to now calling people idiots and it has gotten to the point where they it's stuck and so now they make a big joke about it. You know, anytime anybody's like getting close to me, they'll be like, oh gosh, oh gosh, dad, oh gosh, oh no. And like, cause they don't want me to like rage and call the other drivers. And they're like, I bet he's an idiot, right, dad? You know, so it's become a thing. But we, we can relate to that. That's something we do and we have done. And so the swing of emotions is just something that we totally understand. And it, in his writing, allows us to care deeply about all of these characters. We care about what happens to them. We want them to come out on the other end. We want them to be successful, right? We want Clark to actually have a family that's super excited about all of the stuff he's put together and have a pool that they get to go in because he made these sacrifices for them. And I think in celebrating that, it attaches us to them in a way that, I don't know, man, I, I guess... Other comedy writers just have never quite been able to mimic, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a, there's a truth to the fact that Clark represents what his coworker Bill says, the last true family man. But he's a flawed character in that you see these moments of rage with him on the road or when he freaks out about the lights not working and how he just goes into a, a bender. And then, of course, the big kind of just huge climax where he goes and just goes off on his boss while his boss isn't there. And, of course, it prompts his cousin Eddie to to do what he does. But at the heart of it, he just wants to succeed and be the best for his family. Like he wants what he sees as his ideal family perfection to play out. And so those small victories that we have with him are fantastic. Like the moments that the lights come on, that he sees them come on, not the moment because he didn't see them the first time and the nuclear power, you know, has to come on to kind of compensate for all the lights. 
but seeing him go good, 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 good. And then the, you know, the spark and his, his face lights up the same way it lights up when he sees the Griswold family Christmas tree for the first time. But what's great about this is that supporting cast around him that elevates his idealism with either pessimism or reluctant optimism. And the, the scene that follows him lighting up the, the house is perfectly showing off every character and every type of stereotype. You've got his parents who are completely supportive of him and who are incredibly proud of him. And then you've got Art and his wife, his wife who's basically, I think, probably on her fourth martini, and she probably didn't even see the lights. And then you got Art who's saying, a little twinkle lights are not blinking, or not twinkling, because I know Art, and thanks for noticing. You know, his kids are somewhat kind of supportive. They they know that this is their dad's kind of project. And then, of course, his wife, who's incredibly proud, of, you know, as proud of him as she can be and supportive. And I think it's supporting cast like that that helped to round out who he is as a character. And and I think that that exists in other movies. I think that Kevin Arnold has that with his family, that we see kind of the jerk he is at the beginning, but it's only elevated by the characters around him, by his brothers and sisters and his mom and dad and this this cast. I mean, maybe not in the strongest of ways. I mean, this is more deliberate in terms of being, you know, a family Christmas vacation. But you mentioned this wholesome approach. Uh, other movies, if, if you look at most of what John Hughes has written, I could probably say that a lot of these are family friendly. Mr. Mom would be one of those, 16 Candles, uh, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. With, you know, with salty language aside, you've got a pretty approachable plot and narrative and, and movie as a whole with a lot of these guys. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, apart from a particular scene which is pretty famous, is kind of on par with the rest of these. And it's not that I'm rooting for more of these wholesome films, but the success of these films isn't rooted in the fact that they have to go one extreme or the other. They don't have to be a G-rated, we can't use any language, we can't be offensive at all, but they don't have to go the opposite of that and be completely unapproachable. And I think the films, like the characters inside them, are incredibly approachable. You know, I I am rooting for more of these kind of comedies. <laughs> and I will point to one that came out this year that I absolutely loved, and that's Instant Family. Came out of nowhere. I'm not the only one who really was surprised by this, but it's PG-13. It only has one, you know, F-bomb, and it's perfectly placed in a, in a, in a spot where you would expect it, and it has an impact. And it's, it's a wholesome John Hughes-like type of writing, where it's not all poop jokes and sexualized humor, and it's so much better for it, and I think it's so much more, again, relatable, because those characters feel like us, and it's something that I can watch with my kids. And that's one thing I love about Christmas Vacation, is this is a movie that I sit down and watch with my kids all the time, right? And there's just so few comedies that I would do that with in 2018 that come out every year. Uh, you take some of the comedies that came out this year, Game Night is one that is more good than bad. Um, it has some of the, that mo those moments that are a little kind of you know cringeworthy at times. You look at your kids next to you and you go, uh-oh, I don't really feel that comfortable. But it's very minimal in that one. Um, but like Blockers, totally not something I would watch with my kids. But yet it's like the big, you know, one that everybody loves this year. 
uh, even tag is kind of a, a mixed bag as far as some some stuff. And I, so I love it. I love that aspect of his writing that he doesn't have to take it to this. And part of it, I think it must be the era, right? I mean, I'm also talking about a movie from, you said 1990? Is that right? 19, 1989, technically. 1989, yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's a different world, <laughs> frankly. Um, and a different sensibility. But yeah, I, I just, I love it. I love the writing. I love the realistic situations that Clark has put in time after time. The lights thing. I mean, all of these things, I feel like are so, such natural, issues for us to have outside of you know like we're not actually going to drive underneath a logging truck i don't think that you can't do it by the way (laughs) my wife and i were watching this the other night and i said there's no way that a car could do that and she's like what it's like the logging truck doesn't sit that high off the ground it doesn't do that it's too high and she's like "Mm, i don't know it's my second favorite uh, version of a car going under a semi truck in the movies (laughs) can you guess what my first is oh tell me it's all about family. It's all about family. <laughs> yes. A little fast and furious little action. Fast and furious action. But I mean, if you're uh, gonna go big, go big, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but like the other thing with the pool, man, you know, it just it always reminds me and takes me to this place of and, and it's good to do this at the beginning of the Christmas season, honestly, where I think to myself, okay, he's he's spending this money before he has it. And it's a common problem with not just myself, thousands of people every Christmas. I put myself on a plan. I, I'm going to get my kids X, Y, and Z. We know what we're doing. But that that part of you that just wants to give, give, give starts pushing you. And you're like, I want to do this thing for my family. So I'm going to I'm going to extend myself or I'm going to, you know, make this move a little sooner than I actually should. I'm going to count my chickens before they hatch kind of thing. And he ends up putting himself in a more precarious position financially because of it. And yes, it pays off in that, you know, perfect kind of you know miraculous way where the boss gets to learn his lesson and everybody kind of gets the things that they want and they need but what appeals to me about this comedy and this this drama here is that it it's all coming from a place of good intentions in clark's heart his primary reason for wanting to do it is because he wants his family to be able to experience it as well and so he's making poor choices with good intentions. And I, I don't know, I just, something yeah. really makes me smile when I watch a movie like that. It's a, it's an interesting dilemma because we cheer for him to have what he wants, but we don't necessarily support the methods at which he's going off and doing it because there, there, there are two or three other scenes, the pool, the, the pool fantasy scene, uh, before it goes into to his personal little fantasy, who's at the pool. It's everybody. It's the whole family. It's his immediate family. It's his in-laws, his parents, I think. And then, of course, Cousin Eddie. So even in this kind of fantasy, he cares so much about family, about getting it right, about making sure that everybody is taken care of, as annoying as they are, as frustrating as they can be. I mean, he absolutely epitomizes what it means to be the last true family man even if there's a bit of selfishness in his heart because of some status i remember reading a, an article a little bit about how christmas vacation could be an argument against capitalism and how it is either kind of trying to keep up with the joneses or it's going the opposite of that and trying to maintain this 
the family quality that goes against trying to fight against, you know, whatever capitalism is. I don't necessarily buy into that. I'd probably need to watch it with a different set of spectacles outside of my normal Christmas. This is hilarious kind of set of glasses. But I think that there's some truth in the fact that as a as a character, getting what he wants is a bit selfish, but the outcome benefits everybody. And I think that he wants what's best for his family, but I think there's still a bit of selfishness in there. Something that I pulled from this one is we had talked several weeks ago about the hero's journey when we were talking about Mary Poppins. And I think that that exists here, particularly near the end. There's this new normal that is talked about as part of that hero's journey. And when Clark is pursuing this perfect Christmas for his family, I love how his idea of a perfect Christmas actually changes by the end of the film. Um, the last moment of the movie is him looking up at the sky at the on fire set of, uh, of, uh, you know, reindeer and Santa. Well, I guess Santa's not in there anymore because he's already, you know, punt kicked him to the, uh, to the bushes. And then Snots is just sitting there looking at him. And Christian was like, why is that? there you know why is the dog there what's the point and i said because this is his new world this is what christmas is to clark this beautiful mess that is the chaos the broken windows the faulty lights the obnoxious neighbors all this stuff comes to fruition on christmas eve where he's like it's not just my family celebrating christmas with me it's now my family and my boss and apparently the policeman and all these other folks this is for him a satisfying Christmas because that one moment when you cut from him into the house, everybody's dancing. Everybody's having a blast. This is the first time that I think everybody in the house is actually enjoying their time with the family. And ironically, it's because they've all had to kind of come together <laughs> through all of this crazy destructive process. And for me, I think that that's definitely this new normal that Clark has kind of embraced by the end of the movie. Yeah, I like that. Um, it actually reminds me in a lot of ways of It's a Wonderful Life. And I know that the narrative sure. is different, but the, the ending of the film and yeah. the idea of this mixed group of people that are all kind of celebrating the fact that this one man who has a great kind heart, it, it, realizing what he's trying to do for them and what he has done. Um, and it's, it's, it's a little different, but it, it definitely kind of, is similar as well. And that probably relates, could relate to the fact that uh, a Capra was working on this movie from what I was reading. There's a, a Capra connection and I don't remember which, which it is. I don't remember if it's a, if it's a child or a nephew or something, but one of the, one of Frank Capra's relatives actually worked on this film. So that was kind of cool. Um, one thing I wanted to add though is when I, about being this film being relatable is I, I take that all the way to the neighbors. I relate to them too, because I am that guy. <laughs> and if you were to turn on your lights and completely blast the entire street into basically the brightness of a freaking LSU stadium, I would have a problem with that as your next door neighbor. <laughs> and I would not necessarily be completely accepting of it just like I see them get frustrated with things. And so 
<laughs> I find it interesting because they're they're played for laughs. They're played up as kind of like these uppity snobby people who don't like Christmas and can't allow others to have their fun and, and enjoyment. But I also think there is a level of responsibility on both sides. So I think I think there's a part of Clark that should take into account his neighbors as well. And there's a balance to be had. And so I don't I don't quite see them probably as the complete butt of all the jokes that maybe they're intended to be. They are the two people in the movie that don't seem to have resolution when it comes to Christmas. Like the last the last moment we get is Julia Louis-Dreyfus getting attacked by a squirrel. And I think that that's the last we see of both of them. Here's a little inside baseball for you guys listening. Aaron, do you remember Joe and Gwen Fitzpatrick? I do not. Okay, the choir director for Park Hill. Nope. Anyway. Anyway, about the time this movie came out, my dad has been quoted on a handful of times as we watched this by saying, the neighbors remind him a lot of Joe and Gwen Fitzpatrick. So obviously, you not knowing them kind of falls on deaf ears. But these are people that I grew up with uh, in our in our local church. They were, you know, led the choir and, and everything like that. But they were very, not pretentious. I mean, they were very approachable people, but they had their own particular lives that, you know, were very kind of suit and tie folks. They had very peculiar way in which they decorated their house and all that stuff. And for him, it rem- <laughs> those kinds of people reminded him of this couple, only without the obnoxiousness, I guess. So <laughs> in any case... Were there any like favorite scenes of yours that, that stood out? I mean, a movie like this can't be talked about without talking about favorite scenes. Um, you know, the tree going up in flames, uh, the squirrel basically in the tree, uh, the Christmas lights, the greased saucer, um, sledding scene, and just the dialogue with Rusty beforehand and about the metal plate in his head and, and, and the, <laughs> the kind of realization of that. That's, that's probably my funniest Rusty part. Yeah. Um, that and then Rusty in the grocery store, uh, just like while they're walking and talking, adding like every single kind of dog food that exists. <laughs> I find that just I, I'm I am unable to control myself for some reason in that moment. I don't know why. Um, those are probably some of my favorite. Oh, and then the beginning. I, I just really love. First of all, I really love the opening song um, written by a duo of Barry Mann and Cynthia Well. I love that it's like this animated foreshadowing version of the story that they go through in the opening credits. It's really cool. And of course that song is just super memorable. Um, but yeah, all that stuff. And then the Christmas tree sequence at the very beginning is probably my ultimate favorite kind of like moment or scene chunk altogether. What about yeah. you? Well, any, any scene with Eddie is always going to get my vote as being just hilarious just because I don't he... know why I said rusty. I meant Eddie. Yeah. It, yeah. You guys knew what he meant, right? Yeah. Okay. They did. They told me. Um, but yeah, any any scene with him, just the lines that he spouts off so deadpan, and particularly his chemistry with Clark is just phenomenal. And how, um, again, John Hughes' writing is just that much greater because of the way he plays subtlety for laughs. But I think one of my favorite scenes, really my favorite sequence, is the is Christmas Eve. When Uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany show up 
and that Bethany's saying things is your house on fire clock is Rusty still in the Navy and then you got Uncle Lewis going geez did they house burn up no this means presents you shouldn't have brought their dynamic is great but everything leading all the way up through the dinner table scene I think is probably one of my favorite sequences it's just laugh after laugh after laugh mixed with almost nonverbal comedy in some ways, in, in some cases. Uh, but some of the some of the dialogue there, you got you got Clark saying, "Kids, I uh, I just heard uh, heard on a news report that Santa was spotted in New York uh, a couple hours ago, and everybody's in on the joke, right? Everybody's in on like keeping this." These kids' fantasies love. Oh, yeah. And then Eddie shows up and he goes, you serious, Clark? <laughs> and then Clark's face is like, okay, yeah, I don't need to pursue that anymore. But I think that that whole sequence to me is probably my favorite in the entire movie. Um, did you know that this movie had a $27 million budget despite having almost no special effects? No. That's a lot. I, I wanted... I wanted to kind of put that into context even. And I mean, it ended up making its money back. It made 71 million back. But I don't know, for those who've seen recently The Nun, which is the newest horror film in the Conjuring universe, came out this year. Speaking of Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I think that they go together. Um, anyway, like it was made for $22 million. Less money than Christmas Vacation. And it's very like, Effects driven with the ghost, right? And obviously, so any scenes where the ghosts are there are very effects heavy. Mm -hmm. And yet, it costs $5 million less and actually use special effects and stuff to get it, its job done. So I, it's just, it's crazy to me how much this movie cost. Now, it made its money back. Like I said, it made, it was, it was fine. Yeah. It tripled its budget, essentially, which was great for this kind of movie back then. Yeah. Um, but I just think that's, it's wild to me that it costs so much money to make it. It's one of a handful of, of Christmas movies, um, whose main set is a set. It's not on, like, it's not an actual house, much like the, uh, the Granville house and It's a Wonderful Life was a, was a set piece, which makes me wonder where all the money went. I'm thinking it went to cast because, you know, these guys, you know, Chevy Chase is making bank at that, at that point and, but, yeah, that that's that's crazy to me. So I'm, I'm wondering, it could have gone to practical effects. So so it could have gone to um like you know blowing out the lights and not getting it right over and over and over and having sure. to make take after take. You would have had to gone through a whole bunch of lights and stuff, or maybe 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 the electricity bill cost them. <laughs> I mean, like that's legit, right? That's legit, right? <laughs> Christian pointed out that if you look at the neighborhood, there are no houses on the opposite side. Like he's got two or three houses that are flanking him. But if you look across the street, there's no houses. And I'm like, yeah, that's either an obvious nod to it being a set piece, or that's a really interesting neighborhood that's sitting like on a cliff or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, Aaron, this has been a great conversation. Um, I'm, I'm glad that our donors picked this one. It's definitely worth the discussion to be had. Even more so, it's definitely worth watching at least once during the holiday season. And, you know, if you get a, get an, a hankering to watch it off-peak or off-season... Go ahead and pop it in. It's just as fun then, too. So we appreciate you guys selecting it. And if you weren't a part of the voting process, I want to give you that opportunity to check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash For as little as a dollar a month, you get a vote in our 
monthly donor pick, as well as a thanks from us. Uh, you can donate as much or as little, but for at least two bucks, you can be connected to the bonus content that we try to push at least once a month. There's some uh, hilarious trivia. There are some top fives. Lots of good conversation out there in the Patreon world. So be sure to check us out on that side if you get a chance to, patreon.com slash film. Aaron, where can people find you on the social webs if they want to keep in touch with you? Well, the two best places are always on Twitter, at film, or in our amazing Facebook group, which we always plug and ask you guys to come be a part of. It's a growing community with film discussion happening on a daily basis, 24-7. So uh, just type that into Facebook's search bar, Feelin' Film Discussion Group, and come join the crowd there. Patrick, I'm excited because as soon as we hang up this call, we are going to start right back up and record our 2018 year in review episode. And that is one of our most favorite times of the year because we don't just go down a list of like our top 10 films. I've already posted mine. It's out there for people to read. It's on the website, etc. And yours is coming yes. here sh- soon. Probably it will be here. Week. It will be here by New Year's Eve. Okay, man, it's even closer than I thought. So yours will be out soon. Uh, and so instead of that, what we do is we answer a bunch of unique questions. You know, we talk about some of our, you know, best performances. We talk about some of the things that we like the most that we discovered for the first time. We talk about uh, the movies that made us feel the most, of course. And then we kind of hit some of the high points for things that we're excited about in 2019. And we even have an announcement or two to make. So really excited about getting that episode uh, recorded. And we're going to be dropping that side by side with this one. So if you're listening to this. You should either have already downloaded that one or you can hang you can hang up. I keep saying hang up. You're not on the phone with us listeners, but you can turn off, you can delete this episode from your podcast catcher, whatever the terminology is, and go start listening to the 2018 year in review at this time. But Patrick, where can people find you if they want to talk to you further about Christmas Vacation or any of our other episodes? You can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm at Facebook and Twitter, and the best way that you can find me is by either tagging me or adding me in the social webs there. If you're not excited about the end of your episode, you need to get excited. But if you need something else to get excited about, you should get hyped for our next full episode, which is Aquaman. And if you haven't already guessed, Aaron's just a little bit excited about it. We bit. I, I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it in the next couple of days, so hopefully my excitement will kind of increase with that. But if you need even more, know that our special guest, Andrew B. Dice, is going to be joining us from ScreenRant.com. Anytime he's on, it's always a good conversation. We could be talking about insurance quotes, and it would be exciting because Andrew's on. So be sure to check us out. That episode will be dropping Monday, New Year's Eve. Eve, I believe. Yes. Yep, that's correct. So you're going to have a lot coming your way. You've already got two things here and you'll have a third one coming up. Got an exciting 2019 coming up and we'll be talking a little bit more about that in the coming episodes. Thanks you guys for listening. And as always, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.